So, call to worship. Beautiful day today. So, I was reading a devotional this past week, and contained within the devotional was a reference to prayer. And as I was reading it, it said that through prayer, prayer you are developing a relationship with God. Okay, I understand that. And then it said something that surprised me. It said, because God wants to get to know you better. And I thought, God wants to get to know me better. That, that's a little backwards because God knows us better than we know ourselves. Um, he knows the beginning of our life. He knows the middle. And he knows the end before it's taken place. So let's turn to Psalm 139. It's a very familiar psalm. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 18. Psalm 139. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in, behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God! How vast is the sum of them! Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. It is true. God wants a relationship with us. He wants our all. He wants our devotion. He wants our worship. He wants us. He gave the greatest gift possible to show us who he is. Let's look at Acts 17. Acts 17 verses 24 through 31. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth 
and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands, as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. He marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commends all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. God wants our prayers because through them he sees our gratitude, our trust, and our faith in him through Jesus Christ. So let's worship him with an understanding and passion for, he, for who he is. And that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we just thank you that you have called us to yourself, that through the actions of your Son, you have reconciled us to yourself, that when we find ourselves in prayer to you, you are actually hearing our prayers. You are communing with us, and we are communing with you. You know us before we were even born. Let us seek to learn and understand more about you through prayer, through your word, through a, a relationship that we seek with you. Thank you, Lord, for your Son, our Savior. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Good morning. <clears throat> if, you, uh, if you have your Bible with you, turn with me to Matthew 6. If you don't happen to have a copy of the Word with you this morning and want to follow, just raise your hand and um, uh, Mark will bring you one. Let's pray together. Father, I want to ask of you to please protect us in this uh, short sermon series. Lord, I recognize the, the temptation, I would call the danger, in having such a familiar text in front of us today. Lord, would you please uh, protect us and guard us from saying quickly, yeah, I know what it says, and I've, I've been saying it for years. And Father, I pray that your word would have a profound impact on us. The truth that is in this portion of Scripture, Lord, we are playing right into the enemy's hand as soon as we say, yeah, I know what it says. 
So I pray, Father, for a fresh desire to hear from the Word of God from this particular passage. And that, Lord, you would do a work in our hearts so that when nobody can see us, when we are alone before you, Father, our prayer lives truly grow and mature. And that we find great joy being in your presence, God. I pray, Father, you would be at work in your people. Even now, in Jesus' name, amen. If you walked on the street and bumped into somebody, um, we'll say his name is uh, Mitch, and, and Mitch asks you a question, how would you answer this being the question? What's the nature of your personal prayer life? What's the nature of your personal prayer life? What's it look like? Now, this would be pretty invasive because you just bumped into Mitch at Bymart and he's asking you this, but he's that kind of guy. So he asks you, what is it like? What's it look like when you pray? What do you pray for? Where do you pray? When do you pray? How long do you pray? What's it look like? What is the nature of your prayer life? My, my deepest, earnest hope in this sermon series is that none of us would answer that by saying, prayer life, but we would actually have some kind of answer of what it looks like. Before I go any further, let me just say this right off the bat, because I think it's vital and needs to be said. I am in no way trying to get you guys, or even myself in my own life, to have a box that I check, so when I pray a certain amount of time, then I feel okay. I don't, I don't go on my knees in my office with my watch beside me and look at it as I pray. That's, that's not what I'm talking about. That's not where I want to go. This is not some goofy, strange, legalistic push that I'm trying to bring into your life. No, rather, what's at the heartbeat of this is I want to know God better. Again, Mitch, there we go. There's the dovetail again with the call to worship. He knows me. I want to know the Lord better. I want my prayer life to be something that is maturing, that is changing, but not just in counted by the clock, but by intimacy. Haven't you been there with a person, say it's a new friend or a friend you've had for a little while, and you have one of those particular conversations, and in that conversation, that friendship will never, ever be the same after you had that conversation. And it doesn't even have to be long. Perhaps they shared something intimate from their past with you that forever, for the rest of your relationship with that individual, is altered. So that's why I'm saying, don't let the clock be the judge. If you sit there and you pray for an hour, and you were begrudging it the whole time, are you really walking in communion and getting to know the Lord better? Answer? No. No. So I'm not so concerned about the quantity so much as the quality of what's your communion with the Lord like. What's happening in your prayer life with him? Um, If you would, turn with me, because I want to give you, I I know I, I introduced this series last week, and 
I didn't even read the context it sits in because that wasn't my main goal last Sunday. But this Sunday, I want you to see the context that this sits in. So Matthew 6, verse 1, okay? So I want you to see the context that this prayer sits in because the Lord is, in a sense, the prayer pattern he's giving is in response... The prayer pattern he's giving is in response to a terrible practice going on in his own day by the scribes and Pharisees. Verse 1 of chapter 6. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. For what purpose? In order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Really quick, all, some folks have gone into that and tried to read into that. All it's simply saying is, don't, don't worry so much about your motives so much as being honest before the Lord and wanting to give. So you're, it's, there's no uh, strategy of how I'm going to give so that way people can see. He's saying, just give for the glory of God for his honor. So that way even your right hand and your left hand don't know what's going on, but praise God, that's what you're doing there. Uh, so, verse 4, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. And again, as I shared last week, the, the Lord's Prayer, I prefer to call it the Disciples' Prayer, Jesus is not giving this as a little thing you can say um, before a meal. This is not necessarily given for the purpose of being a repetitive prayer. Now, in our culture, we've all been there, right? You go to memorial service and somebody starts to say, Our Father, as soon as he says, Our Father, everybody joins in and you say that prayer together. I've always found that interesting because there's believers and unbelievers at that memorial service and the unbelievers have no commitment to Christ, no connection to Christ, and he's the one mediator between God and man. So how on earth are they praying that prayer that's going to get to God apart from Jesus? Answer, he can't. But the other part is that that was never the intention of Christ, was to give some prayer that people could just say over and over and over and over again. Disengage your brain and follow me. That wasn't the goal. Rather, what he's saying is, here are some, some structural pieces of what your prayer life should have. Here's some pillars. Here's some, um, some furniture in the room for you as you consider how to pray. The Lord is showing them what pieces should be in there. And there's three, or six rather, pieces to this. Six petitions. The first three, God's name hallowed, the kingdom come, and God's will be done. Second three, man's daily bread, forgiveness of debts, and fighting against temptation. Please notice this, because this is at the heart of what I want to share with you this morning. 
please notice that the first three petitions, the beginning, the starting point of the model prayer for us, disciples of Jesus, has nothing to do with our needs and has everything to do with the honor, glory, and majesty of God. I want to read this quote from Andrew Murray. He says, there's something here that strikes us at once. While we ordinarily first bring our own needs to God in prayer and then think of what belongs to God and His interests, I love this statement, the Master reverses the order. First, thy name, thy kingdom, thy will. Then, give us, lead us, deliver us. The lesson is of more importance than we think. In true worship, the Father must be first, must be all. The sooner I learn to forget myself in the desire that he may be glorified, the richer will the blessing be that prayer will bring to myself. No one ever loses by what he sacrifices for the Father. This concept of my prayer life, a big portion of it being dedicated to pray for God's glory, God's honor. I'm convinced without a shadow of a doubt, one of the telltales of maturity of a Christian is how hungry they are to see the Lord glorified and them not. Because the natural heart, the the natural beating of the heart of a natural man, unsaved man, and new Christian still wrestles with that concept of, I want to be seen. And please notice, beloved, this all sits in the context of Jesus rebuking the scribes and Pharisees. You go and you give for the purpose of people seeing you. And you pray for the purpose of people hearing you. Why? So that way they would look to your Father and glorify Him in heaven? No. So that way they glorify you. So that way they see you and your majesty and puff you up. That's that's the context that he's sitting in, that he's doing here. Now, here's what is just astounding theologically and ironic to use spiritual practices to make much of us. And yet, don't we see that all the time? Can't preaching be abused and used to make much of the person preaching? The person with the golden voice leading the the hymns? The person with the, the talent playing the piano? The person with the eloquent capabilities of teaching? Don't we at times struggle with that, wrestle with that, where God gifts us and we come up and we say, I am so glad you are here because you... Now, I'm not arguing, therefore, we should try to be the worst we are, worst we can be at certain things, be bad preachers, bad piano players. No. I'm saying there's a proper perspective where we go, that is because of God's work. And yet, it's so natural for us to walk up to the human being and say, I'm so glad you are here because if we didn't have you, blah, 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 and God loses his glory that is rightly his, because we've been so shallow to give his glory to a sinner saved by grace. That's kind of harsh, I know, but it's true. So take the medicine, because it's, it's the truth of the word of God. It's not about us. It's about his great glory. And so in the context of him saying, don't do this with your giving, don't do this with your prayer. Rather pray like this. And isn't it fascinating, the very first petition is that God's name would be hallowed. Not Dan's, not the scribes, not the Pharisees, not the elders, 
Not the deacons, not the deaconesses, not the performers, not Pacific Coast Bible Church. We're not here to make much of the name of this place. I want the very first petition in your heart to be that God would be honored, is what he says. So this word hallowed is an interesting word. It means to to make holy, to sanctify, to honor, to consecrate, to set apart from all else. You're setting it apart. It's it's, it's different. It's, It's putting it aside from all other things. We use this idea all the time. This is everywhere in our world. What does my mom mean when she says, no, go to the cabinet and get the good bowl? What does she mean? She means the particular bowl that has the the weird Christmas pattern and then bring that out. And it's the bowl that doesn't have the chips and it's the one that comes out at this particular time of the year. That bowl is set apart specifically to be used for that particular dish at that particular time. We know that. The family knows that. That's the dish you bring. We use it all the time. We say, no, get the good china, right? No, the good silverware. This is stuff that has been set apart different. It's different from the rest of the silverware. You can chip up all that rest of the stuff you want, but not this one. When my dad would buy a new tool, he'd have a brand new tool in the garage, and we would find it and destroy it. And my dad would consistently say, you wrecked my good one. Now, the funny part was we all... (laughs) He didn't have to describe which was the good one, and so it's like, um, you know, well, I just said Mark did it, and it worked. But you, that concept of my dad had that tool set aside, it was particular, it was special, and it's different than the rest of the tools. We use this concept all the time in our culture. You need to put that in a completely different wavelength. When we speak of God... He is to be hallowed. He is to be utterly different than all things. He should never be spoken of as we speak of anything else. He should never be, nothing should ever be treasured in the heart the same way he's treasured in the heart. The Lord is showing how to pray, and the very first one is, Hallowed be thy name, to make holy, sanctify, honor, consecrate, to set apart for all else. Uh, Bill Mount says, not only to treat God and his name with reverence and honor, but also to glorify him by obeying his commands. So this is far more than simply don't swear using his name. This is far more than just the way I speak. Because how easy can I do that with my sinful heart to play the game when I talk of God, I treat him as holy out loud, so that way people see me treat him as holy, right? So I can convince everybody I treat him as holy. It's far more than that. This is not simply the way we speak, not simply the way we use his name. It's far deeper than that. It is to be treated with the highest honor that he would be recognized for who he truly is. Beloved, we are not making God holy. God is holy. I'm just recognizing it more. I'm seeing God rightly. So, you know, it's kind of like, hang on. It's kind of like when we say, 
you know, well, I just, I want to glorify God and I want to make him look great. Newsflash, he is great. You're just recognizing it. We are not adding to him. There is no addition to God. We are reflecting who he is and what he is to this watching world. And in his grace, he widens that scope and lets us see him a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. And as we see him, we are freshly astounded by his majesty. So that way, the, the, the football team or the hobby or the little trinket or the fill-in-the-blank whatever doesn't come close to the brilliance of Christ the more you see him. And everything else starts to look faded and boring when you've tasted the reality of who God is. Remember, guys, the struggle that we have is not that we're trying to replace the Lord with something of equal value. We're putting something of incredibly, eternally less valuable in his spot. We're trading him in for this stupid little thing that's going to be rusty and moth-eaten in a few years. And so when we say we want his name to be hallowed, we're not adding to God, we're recognizing God for who he is. I now see him better than I saw him 10 years ago. God willing, I'll see him better in another 10, in another 10, in another 10. Why? Because he's getting better? No, I'm getting more of a clearer picture of his greatness. Now, it's interesting. It says, hallowed be your name. At a very shallow level, you could read that and you could say, well, that means we treat the name of God special. We treat the name of Jesus special. We treat all the different names that we hear of the Lord in the Old Testament special. Now, that's true. I'm not saying that that's not true. That's absolutely true. But actually, what it's saying here when it says the name is actually revealing the character of God, which is actually revealing God himself. So the text is not saying, I want you to treat his name as holy. He's saying, I want you to treat God as holy. It's a great study at some point, if you're, in, if you're interested, to get a list of all the different names given to the Lord in the Old Testament and the meanings of those names, because that's a revelation of his character. You learn about him. You learn about his power. You learn about his love. You learn about his provision. You learn about his sovereignty. As you study those names of the Lord, you see a revelation of the character of the living God. And so when it says, hallowed be thy name, what it's saying is, I want God set apart as holy. Now, talk about basic Christianity 101 for the pastor to stand in the pulpit and say, treat God as he's different and treat him as holy. All of us would say, amen, of course. This petition is that God would be honored as God, treated with the absolute highest regard, both now and forever, by all. The truth found in the meaning of his names reveal his character. Now, here's what I find fascinating. When we ask the question, so who treats his name as holy? Who exalts the name of God? Now, first and foremost, we would say us, the believers, those who have been born again in Christ. Those of us who have eyes to see and ears to hear, we recognize the value of God. Uh, yeah, yeah, of course. But then I go back to the Psalms. 
And I read the psalmist say consistently, let the nations recognize his majesty and his glory. See, it's not just hang out in your holy huddle at PCBC in this tiny little building and that will suffice. No, let the nations recognize his glory. The heavens declare the glory of God, we're told in the scripture. So all of creation should be screaming towards the glory and majesty of God, seeing him as hallowed. And yet, here's the thing. This is what is so mind-boggling, is that in the moment where all creation should be declaring the glory of the living God, you will pass somebody on the street who happily and glibly uses his name as swearing. The depths of the depravity of the heart of man astounds me and continues to astound me that the living God's name would be used as a swear word. That Jesus Christ would be used in anger as a way of cursing. That you got to be really, that's what's in the heart of man apart from Christ, that they would take the holy name of the living God and use it as a means of cursing. Beloved, I charge you and I challenge you do your best. Do not get comfortable with hearing that. I'm not saying make yourself a pain in the neck where you get in everybody's faith. Remember, they're unbelievers. They're dead in sins and trespasses. They don't know Christ. But you, in your heart, don't get comfy hearing that. Sometimes I wonder if if somebody were to use my wife's name as a curse word, how quick they'd be on the ground, and yet... And yet, I hear the name of God used, and it can pass without hitting my heart. Have we become so familiar with the name of God in our fallen culture that we just let it slide through without even bothering us? The Trinity is referred to as holy. I'm going to give you these texts. I walked through these in the first service. I'm just going to give you the text because they're very, very clear um, God the Father, Leviticus 10, 1 to 3, that's when the Lord takes Nadab and Abihu. He takes their life. And Aaron is told that all those who come near me, says the Lord, will regard me as holy. Now I ask you, how serious does the Lord take his glory? When the scripture says the Lord does not delight in the death of the wicked, and in an instant he took out both of those young men and tells Aaron, Everybody that comes near me will be treating me as holy, and Aaron holds his peace. In 1 Peter chapter 3.15, we are told to sanctify the Lord Jesus Christ in our hearts, to make him holy in our hearts. And consistently, the Spirit of God is referred to as the Holy Spirit, the set-apart Spirit. We are to honor God as holy, as set-apart. So here's a question I want to pose to you now, just something to consider. How do we hallow the name of God? How do we do that? Is that something that happens just simply supernaturally to us? In part, yes. In another part, no. There actually is a task and there actually is a work and a growth in our life as believers to where the name of God means something. Not just the name of God, but God himself. How do we hallow the name of God? Well, first and foremost, watch your language. 
And I don't mean that in the sense of don't swear. I mean, watch your language. Watch what you say. And see if you treat God flippantly in your language. See, this is tricky for a preacher or a Bible teacher because we we handle holy things a lot. And so those holy things, those precious truths, the words, the very name of the living God can become very familiar. You guys have heard me for 10 years. I've been here in this pulpit preaching, and you've heard that prayer. I know you have multiple times where I've asked the Lord to protect us from over-familiarity with holy things. It's because it's heavy on my heart, because I get the privilege and the honor of handling holy things week in, week out. And to stand before the people of God and bring those holy things and to talk about them flippantly is a dishonor to his name. So I need to watch my language. How flippantly do I speak of holy things? How flippantly do I speak of the Lord? Does his name come across your lips without the slightest twinge in the heart? Do you hear the name of Jesus in your week and it's just right by without even recognizing it? Beloved, There are all kinds of things in this life that's special to us. I know that. My wife, my kids, this church family, very, very important things. Material things, my library is important to me. It's special to me. There's sentimentality connected to it. All of that must bow before the living God so that nothing, absolutely nothing, is above him in that which I revere and hold holy. And I'll just confess, I fail it every day. Every single day I fail that where something becomes more important than him. But I know in my mind and I know in my heart of hearts, God, be at work in me to make nothing, to put nothing above him. So how do you hallow his name? Well, here's one one piece to it that I want to share with you. I think one of the best ways we keep his name holy is by walking in obedience to him. We recognize his word. We see what it says. Our culture tells us we're kooky for wanting to follow it. And yet in obedience and in joy and in holding him up as most important, we walk in obedience. A question that I ask myself periodically and I would ask you this morning is, whose voice is the loudest in your life this morning? Who has the loudest voice in your ears this morning? Is it you? I hope not. I don't trust Dan. Is it the culture? Is it your spouse? Your kids? Who has the loudest voice in your life that everything else is silenced when that voice is spoken? You know, it's like a little kid, right? Little kid is up there and they're they're doing um, a little Christmas play. I'm not going to dance or sing. And they're on the stage and they're doing a little Christmas play. And there's all these parents crying out and applauding and saying this, that, and the other. But my dad's voice, I can hear. Beloved, that is the call on our life, is that with all the voices screaming at us right now, God's voice, I can hear my father's voice in the crowd. Lord willing, that's true of us, that the loudest voice in your ear right now is the living God. Because I'll tell you, if he's quieted, it doesn't remain a vacuum. 
because there's a ton of voices out for you right now. Unfortunately, the loudest voice that competes with his voice is my voice. So I believe that we hallow his name, we make his name holy, we, we, we want to see that elevated personally in our obedience to him. So when the world looks at a Dan Mason or Stuart Ford or Mitch Tingley, when he looks at those men, the world looks at those men and goes, you are going completely contrary to what everybody around you is telling you to do. Why would you do that? Because the living God's opinion matters more than anybody else's opinion. Do you see what you just did in such a public way, in such a clear way to those around you? You just said, He's hallowed above you and above me. This prayer is in line with God's desire for his own name to be hallowed. You may not have thought this. I don't know. It it wasn't a fresh insight to me, but it sure was a reminder insight to me. Who is instructing them in this prayer? Who's teaching this prayer? Starts with a J. Good work. Okay. So, Jesus is teaching them this prayer. Jesus is God, and it says to hallow the name of God. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Is Jesus telling them to pray that he be glorified? Now, it's a very simple answer if you read John 17. If you read the prayer of the Lord Jesus... Glory talk uh, is everywhere in that, in that chapter where he's saying that the Father glorify the Son and the Son glorify the Father. That's everywhere in that passage. So this is not off the beaten path. I'm not crazy. Well, about this. <clears throat> I am convinced, this is, guys, theologically, biblically, this should not be a controversial statement in the least. But because of our sinful nature and the weird culture we live in, it's utterly controversial. I'm convinced God's greatest desire is that he glorify himself. Utterly convinced of that. I think God's greatest desire is not me being happy with what I want, but rather for him to be glorified. Now, here's the catch. You knew a catch was coming. I'm convinced the more we grow in Christ, the more his glory is where our greatest joy is found. They're not opposed to each other. They're linked. The greatest joy we can find is in God glorified. That's why I believe heaven is going to be marvelous. Our joy, please notice, I'm not saying happiness. Happiness is based on circumstances. I'm talking about joy, something that even in the midst of circumstances continues on. Our joy is found in God being glorified. And God's joy is found in being glorified. Leviticus 10, 1-3, with Nadab and Abihu, he says, All those that come near me, I will be sanctified. I will be glorified. I'll be honored. Psalm 23.3 tells us, for my name's sake. Isaiah 48.11, the Lord says, I will not give my glory to another. And I can give you a ton of verses. If you want to have a cup of coffee, you buy the coffee, I'll bring the verses, we'll sit down, and I will show you so many verses that say over and over and over that God's greatest desire is for himself to be glorified. And here's the tough part. 
by nature, in my sinful, messed up head, my greatest desire is for Dan to be glorified. And God, in his marvelous grace and mercy, transforms my thinking to where my glory, I recognize it for what it is, and I recognize his glory for what it is. I can argue from Scripture that we were never intended to receive glory, and I can argue from our culture and our world. I will show you so many people who've been given everything the world could afford, day in, day out, money, um, sex, prestige, all these things that are granted to them, and then you ask them how many shrinks they're seeing per week, how many times they've considered taking their own life, and it's astounding, and you go, why would they be so falling apart when they were given everything? Because there's a design where they were never intended to receive the glory that is God's. And we, like a culture, are just insane in how we give God's glory to man. It's, it's insane. And the fearful, fearful part, beloved, is that what we do is we destroy people when they give the glory of God to man. Because they can't handle it. They weren't designed to handle it. We are built, I'm convinced, we are built to glory in another to give fame to another, to give credit to another, to give all of our praise and adoration to another. I was not designed to receive it. I was designed to give it. And so, is it right for God to desire his own fame and glory? Answer, of course it is. Why? Because he's utterly worthy and deserving of it. See, the reason it's gross, if I were to stand up here and tell you that I'm worthy of glory, worthy of honor, worthy of prestige, worthy of praise, all of you would go, ugh, this guy's fired, get him out of here. Why are we saying that's gross? Because it's not true. At all. The only thing I'm worthy of where I can tell God you owe me is his wrath poured out on me in hell. I can tell, I can demand that. God, you are a just God, and I demand you give me your wrath. I wouldn't do that. I praise God for the Lord Jesus. We see that as egotistical, narcissistic, because you don't deserve it. But what do you do when the person fully, completely deserves all adoration and praise? Well, now you're dealing with God. Now you're truly seeing him for who he is. I know it's an oversaid statement at times, guys, even a cliche, but the fact is this world is not about us. It's about the Lord. And on the horizontal plane in our weird culture right now, you watch your advertisements and you listen to songs and you, you see all of the products being made. It is all about us, and it is blinding to us of the truth and of the reality that it's not about us. I don't, I'm not breathing in this moment for Dan. I am breathing for the glory of God. And that's true of every believer, unbeliever, all the trees, every grain of sand out there is in existence for his glory. So we must come to the realization daily Please notice this. This is not a one-time thing because we are sinful people. 
we must daily come to the realization that God is at the center of the universe and I am not. Guys, the, one of the greatest needs in the American church is a departing from a man-centered perspective in theology to a God-centered perspective in theology. That God would truly give us, when nobody's watching, please, this is, this is the tricky part, right? When we're in secret and nobody can see what's truly what's in your heart, you genuinely have more joy when you see him honored in your weakness than you honored in your strength. Nobody can see it. Nobody knows what's in your heart except for the living God. And God goes, wow, they are, I am, I am building something in them, doing a work in them that they actually found greater joy in seeing me glorified than them glorified. This is what we pray when we say, hallowed be your name. Father, I want you to be set apart from everything. I want you to be who you are. I want to see you for who you are. I want my friends to see who you are. I want my family to see you for who you are. I want this entire creation to praise and honor and glorify you because you are absolutely, totally worthy. So I close with a question. Is there a space in your prayer life where you specifically pray that God be glorified in this world? Because this is a model prayer from the Lord Jesus to his disciples. You, you Christian, you're a disciple of Christ. You're growing in prayer. You have a desire to pray. And isn't it fascinating in the model prayer from God in the flesh, he starts by saying, pray that I would be honored, that my kingdom would come, and my will would be done. Not necessarily praying for your dog that's sick, which is not bad. Not necessarily praying for your uncle that is sick, which is not bad. Not not necessarily praying for the salvation of your neighbor, for the salvation of your sister, for the salvation of your uncle. No, those are all wonderful things. Asking the Lord for that. He loves that. His demeanor to our prayers is a sweet receiving Father. But beloved, don't miss the screaming fact from the text that the three petitions have to do with the honor and glory of God, not the honor and glory of me. So what does that say about the demeanor and the passion of the Christian? I want God honored and magnified in my life. And what I love about it is that this is all in the context of prayer, asking God to do it because I can't do it. This is still the work of the living God to enable Dan to honor him. Do you recognize the dependency, the incredible dependency we have on him, that I'm even dependent on him to give me the desire to pray this way. I need God to give me the desire to pray that he would be glorified in my life. Apart from me, you can do nothing, our Lord said. And so, beloved, I close with my prayer being very simply that the Lord would enable us to have a passion for his name and for his glory in our prayer life, but far more than just our prayer life, in our life.
And I'm hungry for him to be honored in what I do. Counseling session, chaplain call, disciplining kids, financial decision, whatever, just all the facets that fill the life. I want those I want each one of those decisions to be made with a heart to glorify God. That's the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Father, thank you for your word. I I just stand in awe of all that is in that tiny little petition in this verse, Lord. Father, please help us. Please, Lord God. I do not, I should not be at the center of my life. My ease and comfort and pleasure, Lord, that's not why I exist. And I'm having such a tough time convincing myself of that daily, Lord. So, dear God, I pray that I would drink from this well of your word, that my mind would truly be renewed, and that I'd be transformed more and more by what I know to be the truth. This world has no truth. Lord, you are the truth. So I pray for your blessing on PCBC, Lord God, that we would be a people who are very desirous to see our God glorified above all things. In Jesus' name.